we're going to deal with serendipity and what comes up. And now I'm finally going to introduce Odette in the way that is um, something I really try to do is not give you a uh, what she has accomplished. It's really a lot more about who I think she is and her artistic practice. So I'm going to read this because I have um, thought a lot after looking through the PDF. I don't have the book yet. Um, uh, it is really something that Odette's work um, makes me think on so many levels and in so many ways. So I'm going to try to share that and encapsulate it. So this is what I what I've written, that it's a challenge to introduce Odette without sounding like a groupie or a fangirl. Having read the, both the images and the text of Dairy Character several times through her PDF, I am so eager to have the added weight and texture and dimensionality of the object that is the book. One reason I'm such a fan, and I've never met Odette in person yet, <laughs> is that she speaks my language. She speaks in analogy and metaphor. And I honestly feel so uh, seen and heard as a result and energized and a lot of other things. So I decided if I had to capsulate your creative process, Odette, I would say that you activate light like a prism and you refract the original source. And what you do is provide a vivid and bold and multidimensional and layered response. Basically, you show us what is latent in the white light because there's so much more. And I try to think who else does this? I'm thinking of artists, I'm like mulling it around. And ironically, what comes to mind is not even an actual person, but a personification of a person, a cartoon character, actually. Um, it's Miss Frizzle of the Magic School Bus, which was something that I didn't watch, nor I remember my kids watch, but I knew she was a character. So I looked her up and I thought, why am uh, leading from Odette to Miss Frizzle. And she was a scientist. It was based on a real teacher. And that scientist in this magic school bus took kids on an explore everywhere and nothing was uncensored. And then I found her favorite catchphrase. And this is a quote, take chances, make mistakes and get messy, unquote. And I thought, there you go. That's why I'm thinking of Ms. Frizzle and Odette, because that's exactly what I think she does. I think you do that with a plum and we are all the richer for it. The other is that I came across a more serious quote previously, and I think it speaks to your creative process. It's more literary and it's a poetic reflection. It's by Gustave Flaubert. And I think it's an apt description of your artistic inspiration and intention, and I would say impact. And this is the quote, one's duty is to feel what is great, to cherish the beautiful and to not accept the conventions of society with the ignominy that it imposes upon us. I'm gonna read it again, because it's a hard one, but I think it's right. One's duty is to feel what is great, cherish, the beautiful, and to not accept the conventions of, of society with the ignominy 
that it imposes upon us. So I had to look up ignominy, and it's a noun, and it describes public shame or disgrace, reproach, dishonor, conduct or, or, or a quality of action that is somehow reproachful. So this quote talks about not accepting the conventions of society, which make us feel this way, or the way that society imposes those feelings upon us. So in dairy character, you refer to it as non-conforming behavior. And the idea is you bring us, I would say you lead us beyond the confines of the given. You remove the imposed learned behaviors. You give us non-conforming behavior because it challenges that which is imposed and it doesn't confirm the imposed expectation from society. You let us change and you let us expand. I looked up the anonyms to ignominy, and those are esteem, honor, and respect. So that's, that's what you're bringing us. In your artistic journey, you take us on your diligent explorations into a deep understanding, a public reckoning of that which is often silently yet forcefully encountered and reinforced. Terms of inclusion, non-judgment, challenging convention by sharing stories, the images, those that are secured on the paper, and those that you refer to that ignite other memories or perhaps were not deemed important enough for a photograph. In this latest monograph, you've given us a fierce and beautiful language in image and text, the result of your rigorous interrogation. And again, you honor the interconnectivity of all our particular vantage points. You're a keen collaborator. Here, you've intimately collaborated with, I think for the first time, both your daughter and your parents. And your expansive explore is an open inquiry, a riveting recollection, a family quilt of sorts, tattered and scarred in places, a poetic unfurling of the stuff of life and love and labor. So welcome, Odette. I'm so glad you're here. And I'm really excited that Mark Alice Durant has also joined us, who I know is a keen collaborator and observer and explorer right along with you. So welcome. Sorry for the very long introduction and the technical difficulties, but we'll shoulder on. <laughs> Thank you very much. And thank you all for being here. It's so nice to see so many folks and so many folks I know too. Terrific. I, I had a question to start, which is, would you call Dairy Character a metaphorical memoir? It's definitely full of metaphor and it's, probably a subset of a memoir um you know it's ba it's based on my life and it's based on where I grew up and it's based on photographs taken by my parents of where we grew up and it's based on stories that I've told all true stories in the book there are 
18 or 19 stories in the book. And so it's, it's, it's memoir, but it, it's as much as it's full of true stories and truths, it's also a recollective experience. So of course it's, it's, it's laden with lies as well, because I don't, I don't think I could possibly hold every sliver of what actually happened correctly. And that's one of the lovely things about having made a book like this is that when my folks have flicked their way through it, have said, I'm not sure that that was that colour or it happened that way or you were wearing that thing. Um, And so it becomes my attempt at storytelling through visuals and stories becomes a new kind of narrative conversation that we have tossing and turning back and forth about who's right, who's wrong, who's got, who's telling the story fully. Mm. How did you begin it? What was the impetus? So I had been, I'd had all over my studio wall in New York for almost two years, a whole bunch of little photographs printed out six by four, seven by five inches. And they were splayed across this one wall. And I really value, as someone who was who trained as a painter, I really value sitting in front of my work. I don't think that's wasted time because as humans, we don't see like a camera. We, when we're looking at things, we're, we've already trained ourselves to overlook things or to look past things. So sitting in front of my work is a way in which I engage with it differently. And it wasn't, these images were, were a combination of pictures. There were pictures that I'd made. There were pictures that my parents had made over the past decade. There were family snapshots. There were found images. There were snippets of text. And it wasn't a project. I'm always reluctant to call something a project too early because if I call it a project, I set up a framework and a structure that I understand and that you will understand and that others will say, oh, it's a project, okay. And I didn't want to call it anything. I just wanted it to be understood as images on a wall. But there was a a big me-shaped hole in that wall. I just didn't know how to fill it. And it wasn't until I went back to Australia in 2019, 2020, and my parents went out for the afternoon and, you know, I go hunting around their house. I'm looking for mystery I'm looking for naughtiness I'm I'm looking for visual treats I'm looking for you know finding out that I was really adopted or something like I, I'm always looking for you know unearthing something that I that I shouldn't be looking at <laughs> and in their understair cupboard I found my dad's cow manual and I knew this manual it lived in the second drawer of his filing cabinet in my mum's kitchen at our farm And I opened it up and it's, you know, sort of letter size, black and white, poorly printed, lots of text and lots of pictures. And it's a book, it is a manual and it's a book about animal husbandry. And those words man and and husband become really important as I put dairy character together. And as I started flicking through it and started reading the text very quickly because I didn't want to get caught (laughs) reading through it, I noticed how demeaning the language was, how it was undercutting of 
women's bodies, specifically female cows' bodies. The pictures were very intensely macro. They were very close up. They were all pictures of udders, teats, vaginas, legs, buttocks, anything that relates to the two key things that a female cow must do, which is produce female calves, not male calves. Male calves are unworthy. Male calves don't breed. Male calves aren't even worthy of the camera. My father never photographed them, and there was a way in which female cows were photographed and heralded and and stored and and, and kept on these loose-leaf sheets as birth records. There was a whole sort of transformative dance with the camera around heralding the female cow. So there's the there was the reproduction, but then also the, the production of milk. And so this production-reproduction cycle that also speaks to photography were the two things illustrated in this, in this cow manual through these grotesque close-up photographs of a cow's, of a female body. And the language was so much like, it was like you'd, you, if, it, if you took porn and crossed it with a Swedish girl's deportment handbook from the 1940s, that's what the language was like. And I felt like in that 10 minutes of looking quickly through this book, I had found exactly what I needed to be able to call all these images on my wall a project, a direction, a reflection, an autobiographical piece that would allow me to speak of home and speak of things that I feel like I know, but also talk about the undercutting of a woman, the undercutting of a woman's body, the way in which a woman's body is lauded, photographed, poked at, prodded at, and assumed that that body has two things. It, it must produce and it must reproduce. And from there, the project that had been sitting as a non-project with images from a decade suddenly came together very quickly. So when you say quickly, how quickly? Like when you said 2019. So, so I found I was in Australia 2019, 2020. I found the manual in January of 2020. Wow. I started working on the book, pulling together all of these images with Cara Buzzle, the designer, in March. And by early this year, it was, you know, by the winter of this year, it was... 80% done. Wow. That is rather fast, don't you think? <laughs> fast on the one hand, but the lead up was a, was a decade's worth of, exactly. well, excusing a lifetime's worth of, of, of experience, a, a decade's worth of picture making that I didn't know what I was making pictures for. You know, I was making photographs to have a future conversation that I didn't know that I wanted to have that I didn't know that I could have and that I didn't know was important to me. And even the process of putting together a book, right, you don't, until I'm putting an image next to an image or an image next to text, I don't know what's possible or achievable or available to me through words and pictures until I put them in front of me and, and play with them and tell the story that I, I felt only I could tell but that a raft of others could probably very easily understand. Mm. That's so, so interesting and so helpful. And I 
didn't mean to say the book was a short uh, experience because obviously you sat with the undefined, but um, kept your curiosity. And, and I almost keep getting the image of an itch, right? There was something you wanted to scratch and, and how to get to it. Um, so the, the real project, if we're going to call it that, was over a decade. Um, and I loved that you're saying you took pictures without knowing really the context of the conversation. You just knew you wanted to have it, but you, you lived without frames for a very long time. And I think that's so important for other people to understand because it's uncomfortable and we want to put frames on it. Yeah, I, you know, I wanted to live, I, I saw themes in the work, and I mm -hmm. kept coming back to sincerity. I, you know, mm -hmm. I love that quote by Andre Tarkovsky, where he talks about the fact that the only thing that an artist can really employ in order to be understood is sincerity, because we have such, we always have a limit on the number of tools that we can use, I can use different cameras or different film or I can lay things out differently in book form or, or on the wall. But the only thing I felt really strongly about that I kept circling back to before I could call it anything was a, somehow a, an articulation of sincerity and that I, I wanted to keep that in mind because I wanted to critique place and I wanted to critique people and I wanted to critique the way in which rural women especially are secondary to the man, although that's not exclusive whatsoever to rural women. But I wanted to keep in mind the sincerity that farming is also hard work. And I, I really respect it as a profession and it is a profession. Um, so that sincerity lever was, it was important to, to keep my foot on. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that we understand or feel that sincerity that definitely, definitely comes through. Um, this is something that is a quote from the book um, and I think is um, your deft use of metaphor um, of looking at um, the lampshade um, that you had said was in your house that had gotten burnt from being left on uh, during the night. Um, and that um, your upbringing flares like the lampshade, I can't return to it in the same light. It's so poetic. I mean, where, I guess I wanna ask two questions. One is the, when you said that you were taking pictures without knowing about the conversation, do you think that that was engendered by becoming a parent and having your daughter as part of a, a, a legacy or a, uh, well, first of all, she's a daughter. So wanting to change that which is imposed on her from a very young age, I'm wondering what was going on what were you drawn to photograph at that time mm -hmm. when you knew you were trying to unearth? Mm -hmm. So I, it probably doesn't necessarily start here, but this is where I'll work from, is that growing up in this farming environment where we were incredibly remote, I was terrified of the dark as a kid. 
And I always thought the dark was a masculine character. And I can't tell you why, because I don't know why. And so in the book, I refer to the dark as a capital the capital T for the and capital D for dark. But I was always afraid of whatever was in the dark's pockets. And so I had this, my, my, I had this nightlight and I write about this in the book. Um, but for the longest of times in my art practice and actually just existing in the world, I always thought about this farm that my parents had until I was in my mid-teens that they lost to bankruptcy as being shrouded in a kind of pink that was absolutely, resolutely, metaphorically and and literally rose-coloured and just wondrous and delightful. And I wanted, when I found this cow manual, I found an opportunity to be able to cut myself off from the mythology of childhood and cut myself off from the rosy glow of nostalgia and instead reference it, but reference it and articulate it in in a much more... um, direct and critical way, but also at the same time recognising that when you grow up in a community, community is has these wondrous benefits but also comes with um, a raft of things that particularly as a woman and particularly rurally you have to navigate. And so I wanted to tell stories that weren't just about what it meant to grow up female but things that I too was wrestling with as a female growing up in this environment, um, which is why I write a lot about light and probably why, I mean, my I can still hear my poet, poetry professor saying, stop leaning on metaphor, Odette. It's such a weak way of writing and you're so much better than that. Um, but I, I, I resist it. And it's, it's, it's why things like the colour pink, for example, became a character all its own. There are all these sub-characters in, in, in the book Dairy Character, like Wire, like the ground, me constantly looking at the ground, being very aware of my station in life as a, as a female, that, you know, my eye line should stay there, not there mm. and not there. there. Mm. Um, but Pink became this, this character in the book because Pink, as w- when I grew up with the colour pink, it wasn't around me. It wasn't a dairy farming colour unless, of course, you were talking about cow's udders and you were talking about reproduction. But I wanted a pink room because it was such a fascinating colour to me because I just didn't know it. I understood blue and brown, and lots of brown, and golds and yellows that would bookend the days. Um, and so the book... You know, to divert a little bit, I guess I'm I'm holding the Yay, <laughs> the single advance copy that I have in front of me. the The book itself is, is bookended by the way the day starts. It starts in the dark. A farmer's day starts in the dark. It starts at four a.m. and it ends in the dark at eight eight thirty at night. And, and the book starts with me being afraid of the dark, and then the sun coming up. And all of these images that, that seemingly from start to end go mm. from the rising and the setting of the sun and a farmer's day to a little girl played by my daughter who shields her eyes from the sun but also shields her eyes from all the things she can't look at. So she's creating for herself a, a dark that's a safe dark. It's like mm. when you put that, the hand over your eyes, it's like I don't want to look and I don't want the sun to burn my eyes but now I'm creating a, a safe place for me to reside in the dark where it's my dark and not mm. your dark. And then mm. in the middle of and then in the middle of the book is this pink 
these these pink pages where all of the stories are mm-hmm. and those pink pages I had this conversation I can't take credit for this this is Mark Alice Durant one of the wondrous things he brings to a project like this is that he said wow you know it's almost vaginal and I said you're dead right like th- there are there's yeah. The pink of the oral storytelling is held in the center of the book. And where is oral history held? Mostly it's held with women. Mm-hmm. And all the this was all oral history until it was put into this book right in the center. It's like what sits at the right and left hand of God the farmer? Oral history. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. sorry, that was a very long answer to your question. <laughs> yeah, but no, of course you layered it and made me think of a million more. But what I want to reflect back is that idea that um, the, so light can burn there, you know, it brings warmth and cooks our food, etc., And it can also terrorize. Um, and this idea of your daughter being an empowered female to choose her dark that's so powerful. Um, what, what a 360 degree shift you are able to create with that. So, so thank you for that. And this is what happens. You always make me think of all these things because in your describing, um, several of the real specifics, um, you, I don't know, I guess it's equal between your words and your images spark a million stories in my head of my own, of my own history, right? Like there was, it's so interesting and I will digress a couple of times, but one, just to give you context, my mother was the seventh child with six older brothers on a farm and she, which I grew up near. And she used to say, you romanticize the farm. We were married to it. And she didn't have all the work in the same way. I mean, she had tons of work, but she was protected and she was actually educated in a way that her brothers weren't. Um, So it's a very interesting a revisit of my own history framed around, I mean, I've thought about this a lot and it informs a lot of things for me. Uh, it wasn't new, but you sparked it in the sense that, um, you know, my dad was a train engineer and he was really interested in school, but yanked out of it in high school, his junior year to support their family, first generation immigrants. So, so what was so interesting to me is all the layers and what you have and what you remember. Um, I grew up in a community that changed very much from my mother's farm and my father being a quote unquote engineer was constantly misinterpreted at school that he worked for IBM, which was in the backyard of where I grew up. And it was like, Oh no, he's a train engineer. And when I used to have to fill out the off the um, forms in school for your addresses, uh, my dad's office was Grand Central Station, actually track 14 to be specific if you wanted to find him. So it's like those kind of layers are what happens. You spark so much. But going back to your ability to write like this, which you also made me laugh because here's what happened to me. I got told as a very young kid, it was actually on a report card that I can't rhyme. They basically were like, don't put her in like a poetry direction. She doesn't know how to rhyme. Well, so funny. And what we remember, <laughs> right, of what we're taught. But your text, are you writing, like, are these coming from things 
when you finally filled the hole and the dairy character manual started to give you frame, is this when the text came to light or life? Or had it been kind of collecting around your studio like the pictures? Oh, that's a great question. So I... I, I'm going to lean on some on some fairly um, perhaps unusual references. Um, <laughs> I was watching the film at some point, Shall We Dance, which is not a great film. It's Jennifer Lopez and, and Richard Gere, and um, but there is this one expression that I that I had to rewind and, and write down because I was watching it on VHS tape. I have a VHS player. And she, Jennifer Lopez's character is a, is a dance teacher. And she makes this comment about the rumba specifically. And she says, the rumba is a, a vertical expression of a horizontal wish. And I, I thought a lot about that afterward, just thinking about how that reminded me of the process of putting a book together. Like what are the, mm. like, photos of these horizontal wishes that I was trying to put into vertical form and some pictures I just I, I, I wanted them so badly in and Cara and I the designer would go back and forth and back and forth and I, I, I we spent a lot of time trying to put these these particular snapshots in until I realized that they didn't want to be a horizontal wish they needed to be a vertical line of text and I needed to mm. stop trying to find a spot for them and I needed to write about them. And so that's where those stories started was being able to describe the language that sat at the periphery of these pictures because the periphery was so much more delicious than the content. And I wasn't trying to be all Bathian and going, oh, I'm going to resist showing you the picture because you won't relate to it. It was simply that a picture of me sitting on a watermelon could not articulate the story of why my father made that photograph mm -hmm. and why it was made in the location it was made in at the time of day it was made. And I realised that I'm not a great short story writer at all, but I found my way through describing scenarios that sat on the fringes and the peripheries of these photographs that seemed so much more valuable and articulated things that could not, that the photograph, I mean, we already laden a photograph and burdened her with such enormous weight. I, I could strip that away and put it into language. And so the, the, the chronology of stories does start with me being, you know, one or two years old and it goes up until I'm around 14, which, which is when we leave the farm. Mm -hmm. um, so they are more or less chronological, but mostly they point to scenarios where the photograph failed me or where I felt like it, uh, it elevated the story. But at the same time, I wanted to be careful about like the economy around that. You know, I, I didn't want mm. to make the book more economical. Living on a farm is not economical. Um, and I didn't want to economize the story. And I did get to a point where I just thought, how many stories am I allowed to include in here? And then I thought, who am I asking permission from? Like, <laughs> and actually it was, again, credit to Mark because Mark said to me, I think there's a story missing. I think there's a part that you need to tell and it's the last story in the section about talking about um, 
the importance of time to a farmer. And that became a really important way to stop storytelling through text and to move on to um, the pictures. Interesting. And when you explain what you mean by economize. I didn't, I feel like this forward. Yeah, I think sometimes photographs are very good at, I'll use a a story to tell what I mean by this because I I remember hearing Simon Norfolk speak. Um, I'm very fond of his work and he was talking at the Tate Modern in London in the early 2000s about his work and he's such a beautiful storyteller too and he was saying, you know, I want to draw you into the picture and get you closer and closer and closer and then and you see the whole audience jump like everyone in the auditorium goes Um, and he says and then I want you to get it and at that moment you've got it and afterwards I thought but then that assumes that everything that sits inside and outside of the picture is completely clearly understood there's a clarity and a and a and a recognition and a huh I'm satisfied and I, I didn't want my pictures to be that satisfying that you would go, oh, okay, yeah, I understood, move on. I, I, I wanted the economy, the simplicity and the ease between the pictures and the storytelling to be somewhat equal where one didn't triumph over another, where one didn't suddenly create enormous clarity over another, Mm-hmm. That it, it it needed to be just that little bit more messy and difficult because life on a farm is is really untidy. It's dirty. It's grubby. It's really unromantic, and on this and at the same time, pendulum swiss you know sort of moves to the left. It's all of those things. It's reasonably tidy and reasonably romantic. So, I wanted it to be a bit more shape shifty than um, than that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That really helps me understand it. And I guess I, I don't know Norfolk's work, but I, I guess I need to. My first inclination is to disagree. You can't lead anyone down a particular path and say you get it because that's it's so individualistic. It's so subjective. Um, Anywho, we won't we won't go down that path, but I wanted to ask. Um, so in the couple of images that we are sharing, I think one of your absolute gifts is the melodic way that you're putting things together and that you do lead us with mystery. There's, you know, I, I did feel an economy in the stories because frankly, you got to their essence. There was not a lot of, you know, you dove right in to some things like so sharply, um, but that's what was necessary, right? It was not dissimilar to how you would have to be in a farm where you did things with brute force, but you were, there wasn't a choice, right? So I feel that in what you're doing. Um, in this particular spread we're looking at, can you speak of, uh, uh, okay, I already just figured out why you've got the Polaroid. <laughs> I just put that together. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So now I know, but let me also ask was that you can tell us, but what was the, the picture? I am assuming this is your daughter 
And this is one of those that you took uh, more recently, obviously, but yeah. It is, yeah. I, I've, I've been photographing, uh, Hepburn's my daughter's name. I've been photographing her for five or six years. Again, not knowing why I was photographing her in these ways, mm. but knowing that there were things I wanted to see. And this is where I... And I sat with her for the longest of times when we were choosing photographs for the book because Mm -hmm. there were lots I wanted to include that she didn't and vice versa. Mm. And I felt really strongly about showing a lot of skin because most of my farm life was spent in various levels of undress and, Mm -hmm. um, and the you know you you I wanted there to be an exposure like I I wanted I, I wanted parts of the body to be exposed down to down to the skin, but also the kind of the the back breaking leaning into women leaning into things women doing this back breaking work that's not recognised it's work it's it's recognised as being what a woman does on a farm which is work, but it's not called work, um, with no time to you know, stop and smell the roses and, and, and no time, very little time to photograph. My mother was the photographer of my brother and I, but, you know, film was expensive and precious and it might take us a year to fill a roll of film. Um, my father was the custodian of the Polaroid. He had, a, he had two Polaroid cameras that were used exclusively for his girls, his girls meaning the cows, and on a rare occasion, my mum would be able to use that Polaroid to make a photograph. But Polaroids for me were these throwaway, like I, I remember my dad throwing away the empty cartridges and, and my brother and I running around the farm pretending these were our cameras and we would walk around and we would say click out loud because, of, you know, it wasn't a photograph if we didn't say click. Um, and I kind of wanted to illustrate, at least in this spread, this idea of, the head being full of meaning but also emptied of meaning and the head being cut off because in the cow manual there were very few photographs of cow heads. You were only looking at the body, except in this case I wanted to show, and I do that throughout the book, showing my daughter's body, the upper part where it holds the wisdom and the strength and and the muscle energy and the muscle memory of work, not the reproductive elements Mm -hmm. necessarily that this cow manual focused on. I was tired of looking at, at buttocks and, and, and legs and, and, and cheeks. Um, and so for the most part, when I was isolating Hepburn, um, I hid her away. And it was things like isolation, you know, being isolated on the farm um, from townies, as we used to call them. I wanted that to stand out. Um, you know, I wanted her to be cropped in because there's this feeling of being boxed in um, but again, you know, I can't take credit for all of that either. I mean, I, Cara and I, I, I was trying to think of what Cara and I were actually like, metaphorically speaking. On America's Next Top Model, there, there were these twins years ago, identical twins. They were the first identical twins that were on the show as contestants. And Tara Banks asks them to pose and one goes left and one goes right. And they made this beautiful, like, photographic moment. And I feel like Cara and I, when, we're desi- when we were designing Derek character and putting it together, she'd make a suggestion, I'd go left, she'd go right. And even though, you know, we don't have the same DNA, we'd make these photographic stories and these photographic moments on the page um, that just 
that just, you know, they seemed to fit and um, it was a really nice way of, of working with someone who is very different to me who doesn't have the same background but who understood this articulation of a, of a woman's body and the role of photography and making the role of photography a subject in the book as well. Say more about that last part. So the articulation of a woman's body, but the photographic component to that, what were you just referring to? In terms of the role of photography in the book? Yeah, yeah. So there's there's lots of times in the book where a photograph is not just, like this is a good example with the back of the Polaroid, it's a photograph but it's also a story about the back of the photograph and what's not seen and what's left out and how in the farming community I grew up in, photography was the man's business. It was never the woman's business. If the woman was taking photographs, it was of her children and she probably photographed the boys more than she did the girls. Uh, Sorry, the girls more than she did the boys because the boys were out working on the farm and there were so few girls in my community. I know I can think for memory, there were two. We were in a community of maybe 60 people and there were two other girls. The, re- the, the rest were boys and men. Um, whereas men being out on the farm, the boys working out on the farm, they weren't photographed as much, but they were in charge of photography. They were in charge of photographing the female cows, not the male cows. So there was this really interesting and very binary way in which gender and photography had a relationship and that depending on <laughs> depending on how you were told you were going to behave um, your relationship to photography was very much determined by the men in the community and whether or not you were photographed at all. Mm-hmm. It's interesting it makes me think of um, reading that you were photographed standing like your dad at a certain point. Yes. Yeah, I write about that. And it's the one of the it's the only pink outfit I had as a kid as well. And I I was I was a really chubby kid and a chubby teenager. And so and you know, that was a way that way of standing sort of accentuated that. <laughs> yeah. I remember actually, um, I'm not thinking of the actress's name right now, but Shakespeare in the Park. Uh it was one of the Shakespeare performances in Central Park. And of course he does gender bending and the woman actress spoke about how when she played a man, she had to walk differently. And she said how much she took up more space literally in the stride of how she walked and how the use of her body. And she was a, a, a slight woman and really noted as she played a male character, she like, she got girth, right? Really interesting. Um, This refers back to uh, very much what's outside the photograph. Um, And it also speaks to, which made me laugh out loud, your amazing interrogation of what is in the photograph, um, because this was layered, right? Uh, You're talking here um, about your dad taking your photograph, um, and you can you can expound on it. I think it was an amazing, like that's what I'm saying about your economy actually of the storytelling. You went right to the heart of the matter, right? I think, yeah. I I mean, throughout the book, I don't write as me. I write as sometimes I write as me, but sometimes I write as my mom. Sometimes I write as my dad. 
Sometimes I write as my younger brother who plays a very diminished role in the entire story. And sometimes I write like I'm writing as a camera. And sometimes I write as a thought that my mother I know is having but would never dare say out loud. So there are all of these roles that I'm taking on as the storyteller. And this was one of them where I like to think I look at this particular photograph that I'm describing where I am sitting on a watermelon. And actually Kim Beale has seen this photograph, um, as has Mark, I think. But I, I'm sitting on a watermelon and I feel like the expression on my face, I know that photograph is not of me. Now, I have probably concocted that years later but there is something about my expression as I sit there being photographed that that photograph really has nothing to do with me. I dare say I was asked by my mother to sit on it so that you could get a sense of how huge this watermelon really was. And I look, you know, somewhat displeased <laughs> to, be, to be asked to, to sit in this way. And again, you know, I, I'm, I'm taking up a lot of space in that photograph, but I was asked, and I didn't know this until later, so here's a little reveal. I was asked to splay my legs as wide as I could so that you could see more of the watermelon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so wow. it's little things like that that I you know they, they they sound better as stories than they do examining the photograph and there's a certain kind of visual examination that I think I'm asking of a viewer uh, throughout the book is that the photograph every photograph and Marguerite um, Duras talks about this you know every image is there for a reason and every image is in its place for a reason but the same is true of the text in that book Every piece of text is there for a reason. Mm -hmm. it, it, mm -hmm. These things weren't arbitrary. They're meant to be awkward friends, mm -hmm. um, like the characters on the TV series Detectorists. You know, they're meant to be these awkward friends who, who really respect each other and get along. But there's mm -hmm. kind of an unspoken knowing that happens, um, I feel like. I hope that comes through and, and, and it, that, in referencing all the characters, my mom, my dad, cows, myself, my daughter, that also silence is or the, the diminished capacity to be heard is also a character mm. um, mm -hmm. in the book. Hence why mm -hmm. there's lots of photographs of the ground because when one is looking at the ground, typically you're not necessarily concentrating on the ground. It's a place to look so that you can feel comfortable or you can show discomfort and not be seen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. So much that you make me think of. Um, one other thought I had in terms of a question was, I noticed you capitalized mum no, capitalized dad, but not mum, and wondered, as you said, that everything was written uh, for a reason. Was that a conscious choice? It was because it's a, it was a male-dominant community and, and the man, the farmer, was king. Mm -hmm. He was always the or dad, dad with a capital D. His truck is, is capital T for truck. Mm. Um, anything that belonged to him, which is amusing because also I can still hear my father swearing at the machinery when it wouldn't work. And he would say, you know, that, that silly bitch of a tractor, he, he would use these slurs that spoke to, to femaleness somewhat to, to then 
sort of put out loud his annoyance at, at, mm-hmm. at machinery that I called his. Mm-hmm. Um, but mum was very much the, the secondary uh, character, so she she is lowercase m. Mm-hmm. You know, I just want to circle back because you talked about the female work and I even undercut it when I said that my mother didn't work like her brothers. Um, that was partly because she was in a favored position being the youngest and things had changed on the farm by the time she was there. But what I can tell you is that my grandmother um, and my mother um, were definitely in charge of the kitchen, which is a a character in your book um, and in the house that you grew up in. And um, I was the youngest of this huge family. So I didn't get to be in that kitchen uh, and have the memories that my older siblings and all my cousins do Mm -hmm. of it because it's central to the whole family. But what I want to tell you is that my astounding fact is that my grandmother had to, you know, not only feed her brood, which was like, you know, nine at the table, she had uh, the lunch, which was the main meal for people on the farm for 22 because everybody that was on the farm and we used to as kids didn't realize this, but we had her pots. We used to go sledding in her pots because our butts could fit in them. They were that big because <laughs> when she was cooking, she was cooking for all those people all wow. day after day. Right. Yeah. That's a lot. Like cooking was a great pacifier. I mean, everything was solved by cooking. If I had any kind of trouble and I dare speak the trouble, mum was always there have a scone have a biscuit have you know like sit down you know take a load off I had you know, <laughs> and, and eat and eat Tea more and, and, biscuits. And, mm-hmm. and, and continue to to eat yep yeah no I I get it um I'm curious about the way you layer things and and this might be coming up when you're talking about the designing that you do in collaboration of when you choose to full bleed one image behind another. Um, I think your editing, your sequencing is really unique. Um, yeah, well, that, I mean, that comes through a process of practice. I can't, I can't put together a physical, I mean, a book is, it's an object that you put in your lap or put in your hands and it becomes a two-way conversation between you and the thing. You know, you're taking the thing in and the thing becomes part of you and you it and you go outside of yourself to see what in part sometimes is already inside of yourself when you enter that place of being with a book. And so I have to have my images spread all over and then we, we, we play and going back and forth with Kara, sometimes I would throw my images across the table in annoyance, frustrated that I, I couldn't make, make them work, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's why, you know, it's like don't make an arranged marriage from these pictures, Odette. Let them, let them be. And I have, you know, I have in front of me like dummy after dummy mm. of, 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 <laughs> Of, of things like it's going to fall apart. It's like ridiculously long and complicated pages. And I would throw them across the table and suddenly they would land in a way and I'd think, oh, that's why, because you're meant to sit on top of, you're, you're shielding something or there's a reason why you're laying on top of one another or a body is touching another body. 
Um, and I, those sort of serendipitous happy accident kind of moments were really important. Mm. Um, I feel like there's, you know, books hold, this book holds a great deal of experience, but then that experience was written on, written into the photographs, it's written into the text, it's written onto our bodies when we engage with and invite a book into our, our personal space. Um, and so I wanted to be true to that process of, of letting go of whatever wishes and intent I had for how the book should look mm-hmm. and allow the pictures somewhat to decide for themselves. And sometimes they're very good at telling you. You just have to be ready to, to listen to them. You might not understand the language or the why, but paying attention to those kinds of things felt really important for this particular book. There you go, talking my language again, because all I do when I'm working with people is say, be in conversation with your images. They're talking. We need to get out of the way and listen. We are so imposing, kind of bullying. Um, And you can feel that, I think. Um, You feel that constriction. And it's literally like putting the horse before the cart. Um, I love what you're talking about, the practice the play, the serendipity, even your own like, you know, damn it move, you know, of like flicking it brings something out. And I think that that's so important and it is getting out of the way and allowing it, the work to come up. And, and I'm thinking what's really interesting here. It's almost like, um, uh, if you give people, any book in anyone's hands is going to be a different experience for each person. And we're going to make certain images bigger than others, which is so cool to think about. And you actually take that apart. That's the prism stuff I'm talking about. It's like, like, right. Like you're hitting me over the head and I don't even know all the colors I'm looking at. Right. I, I, it's like now she's doing this, but that's what you're doing is you're really illuminating the things that go on. So I really, really appreciate that. I loved the, the sequence where the image came across both pages just from the top. Like I almost clapped out loud. That was another like <laughs> awesome choice that, that is just so good. And, and how, frankly, the, that's why I can't wait to get my hands on the actual book, how many images touch each other. And some don't touch each other at all. So that becomes its own language, right? And and we're in it. Um, Let me just get a couple of these quotes because I just want to talk about a couple of other things and and then open it for questions. But this idea, and I had to quote your mom, um, you know, not being able to find the kids on the farm, one way is to just call the dogs because you guys would be with your dogs. All the time, I you know that's that. it's a good it's a good example of where, whenever we make a book, I think, or whenever we send something out into the world, to some extent, the meaning comes later. You know, it doesn't need us to to lead it. It doesn't need us to call it or to guide it. It, it can just be. And this was something that came really close to the end of putting the book together when Mum said, "Oh, you know, we never worried about where you were, and if we needed you, this is what we did." Then it was just that magical, oh okay, thank you. That's a gift. And in it goes. Oh, that's so great. I just totally, totally love it. Yeah. Yeah. 
it makes me think again, sorry, but it, you did. Um, mine being the youngest of four, I was in a household. All my relatives were, a lot of them were within walking distance. It was, it was, it was active. Um, I was forgotten at a flute lesson. Like everyone had left, they were locking the building. And it was my sister who was like, where is she? When everyone went to sit to dinner and I was, yeah, it was really interesting, right? Yeah. So those little things that happen, those family stories, um, you, that's what I'm saying. Like I'm taking in yours and I was totally like mesmerized, honestly, by all of this juxtaposition, as well as the, what you pulled from the actual manual, um, but you spark so many thoughts and experiences and, and impact. And this is an example of where I love how you play with scale. And, and then obviously these, these pictures of Hepburn when I love this, like you're, you're finding a language through the photographs you're taking together with her. And you don't yeah. even know what story you're telling. And I didn't when I was making that particular photograph. Um, what's interesting in watching, uh, having having a kid and watching her behave and play is that I, I very intentionally don't ask her to do things because I feel like I will ruin whatever magic comes out of her body. And, you know, I have photographs that my mother has taken of me photographing Hepburn, where she was, for example, pretending to be a cow and she was bent over and mooing and sort of walking through the paddock. And I I, I, mean, I couldn't make that up. And I, I photographed her doing it. But the photograph of me, that, that photograph isn't the interesting one. The one is the one where mum is photographing us behaving in this way, where you sort of look at it and go, why is that woman photographing that little girl bent over where there's all this cow shit everywhere and you know, it, 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 I have a, so many pictures like that, that again, there were ways that I probably could have worked them in here, but they didn't seem right. I was so much more interested in this gest, these gestures and the cow manual where men and men's hands, not even male bodies in full, were pulling or pushing mm. or inserting themselves into or onto cow bodies and specifically anything that spoke to reproduction and they were so offensive I mean they're cropped like that that and I it was it was gift and omen at the same time and I mm -hmm. struggled with that for a long time thinking am, am I purporting that am I what am I doing here with the gift and the omen am I am I making something worse or am I trying to multitask and tell a, a different story mm -hmm. better? Um, and that's why, you know, you mentioned about the physical space in the book. Um, one of my favourite books is by Juhini Palazma, an architect called The Eyes of the Skin, where he talks about the eyes being the organ of, of nearness, of, of, of distance and touch being the organ or the, the sense of, of, of closeness. Mm -hmm. And that's why a lot of the images are either touching each other as support mechanisms or far away because it seems like there's a physical or an aesthetic relationship when really the distance is the subject and... 
Um, that's probably why it took so long for certain um, pages to come together because it wasn't a case of saying image, 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 image. It was why is this sitting right here and why does it sit next to this one in this mm -hmm. way? Yeah, I, I know that we we were on a call earlier this week on something else when I talked about um, that it's not only the why, but also the why not. There's yeah. a lot of freedom in, in looking at that. So I think this is just, um, I think that's a typo there. It's, um, no, it's not, sorry, I'm looking at the wrong thing. So this quote about fate written in the skin, layers down, face down, emotion side down. That's so interesting. And actually not like I get the sense of how things like your favorite book, Eyes of the Skin, distill in you and then you come out with something like this. Right? Like well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's, you know, I probably wouldn't have written that if, if Mark hadn't have said, you need to add this one last story. And, you know, confession, I was thinking about the emotion side down of scanning and I went, hang on a minute. Did I say emotion or emotion? Oh, emotion. No, it's emotion side down. No, that's it. And then I went off and, and I wrote that little piece. But I did it because... Mark's wisdom ah. and genius was really around why it was that the book felt somewhat textually unfinished where I needed to talk about gore and blood and, and, and bone and, and how I was taught then to attend to my own body and how, when I, you know, I was never taught to shave anything except a cow. Like that's not helpful for learning how to shave a body. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that that little snippet of a story, I think, is what I was talking to Mark about on the phone. And he said, you have to write, you have to include that. So I probably wouldn't have written that had it not been for that, that um, mm. kindness. That spark. Well, and the collaboration. Um, I am wanting to um, open it to questions. So maybe we can say, uh, please raise your hand and Deb, we can call on people while we're in that space, um, you're actually answering it. I was thinking about asking you who inspires you, but you're sharing a lot of the reading that you do, the way people are thinking about seeing or thinking about experiencing. Yeah, I had, it's funny. I had to make a list yesterday for something unrelated about art and writing and films and television that knock me out and I I've spent way too much time but also good time really thinking about where where I get you know um inspiration from and I, I get it from a lot of sources but things that came to mind were lots of reading um like Green Eyes by Marguerite Duras and you know films like Decasia um, lots of kids' films, actually, lots of Japanese anime films because mm. of the quality of the storytelling, like Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind and um, The Cat Returns and books like The Savage Detectives or Kathleen Stewart's Ordinary Effects. Or, and I look, I look at a lot of painting, um, Anselm Kiefer and one of my favourite painting books, which is all a, it's called Destroy the Picture. It's from a catalogue um, about a decade ago. Um, 
but I feel like I'm just I'm constantly surrounding myself with a need to look. I think looking is such an enormous privilege that I take for granted enormously. But also listening. You know, I, I was saying before the call how I was listening to Peter Satira, who is before my time, <laughs> before my timeline somewhat. But I, I listen to things that move me in ways that are unexpected. I watch, I don't know anything about dance, but I watch a lot of dance. I look at a lot of furniture. I, there's, mm-hmm. I, I always assume that something in the world has something to give and then I have something to return. Mm-hmm. And whether that's visually or audibly or textually or graciously or just, you know, in, in my head saying thank you, I, I feel like there's lots of places from which I draw. There are some touchstones for sure, the work of Theosta Gates and, and others, but I, there is, there's potential there. I just have to be in the right frame to see it. Tell me that name again because I'm not familiar. Theosta Gates? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so so there's, lot, there's, there's, lots of, there's lots of work, music, films, things oh. that I, you know, Mm-hmm. I, I, I go cool from yeah 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 I love that you brought in dance and furniture um you know I I think that um inspiration is that wide and I love um I'm one of those people that often cries at dance I love dance I'd go to watch any performance and and half the time I end up in that space because it's just so I mean when people are using their bodies as instruments. It's so beautiful. So let's open to questions. Deb, do you see raised hands? I'm looking myself. I do not see any raised hands. Um, I've invited people to unmute themselves if they'd like to ask. Terrific. And I'm also happy to ask on your behalf if anyone wants to write directly to me. Mm-hmm. I'm just looking. This is one of the the shares that I have um, that I I, I didn't show you or I told you that I pulled out too just uh, from the book because of the sequencing and thinking about that. Who's, when did the photograph of the hand happen? And is that Hepburn? It looks too old for Hepburn. No, it's not Hepburn. That's one of the very few found images in the book. And it comes from an archive um, that I bought of mostly male hands. And what I liked about it is not just the position and the gesture, but the fact that it's holding an unidentified stick that we don't know if it's part of a tool Mm -hmm. or whether it's something very benign or something for damage or, and, and the, you know, the clothing, it looks like a white, shirt but it was this this the shadow more than the hand itself like there's this this attempt at labor or a gesture or something the shadow that falls behind it but there's no articulation of what's happening before or after or in the wider part of the scene and I didn't have I there was something about the direction from which that's coming and what it's doing, it, it felt like 
when my father used to try and get the girls into, and he always called them the girls and I call them the girls, when he'd try and get the cows into the dairy, I mean, he didn't have a stick, but he had a special gesture that he would use to do it, which I can't replicate. Mm-hmm. And he can't fully remember well, but they would they, they would just sort of ten hut. And I don't know how he made these feisty cows ten hut twice a day. And he would do it and they would all stand in line and they would all stand to attention. And when I found in the cow manual these different cow hooves all standing mm-hmm. in a row mm-hmm. being pretty and right, it was like, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to put this next to, this idea of a, a dominant hand or a dominant force coming in from one direction and asking you to toe the line, um, even if that's not what's really happening in the photograph because to look at this scene unfold in the dairy, you would assume to some extent that that's what, what might be happening. And I think photographs are really good at that, at being slippery storytellers. Mm. where there's how the scene plays out, but then there's what the photograph actually implies or reads. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's so true of so many of the images in this book. There's this there's these implications, you know, the way my daughter is cropped and her this sort of majestic way that she's always looking up and I'm, I'm showing her with that, you know, almost like a statue or, you know, trying to find the sun like a sunflower. Mm. which is not my phrase, that's Justin Kimball's phrase, but um, this idea of looking up to the stone statue um, or and then becoming like Lot's wife, you know, turning to salt because she looks behind. Mm. So there, there were all these little references, but they, these were things that I was thinking of as I was putting this particular page together. Yeah, talks of the, non, the conforming behaviour, right? A gesture can yeah. elicit conforming behaviour. And this is the other one I pulled specifically because of this idea of the, the narrative between the images. And I, I am opening up for questions if anyone wants to unmute and ask. And, and Mark, if you want to uh, open up uh, your mic and talk about the, correla- the collaboration with Odette, let's spend our last moments on all of those kinds of things. Um, You can hear me now? Yes. Well, uh, thanks, Sib and uh, Odette. That was a really great conversation. Um, I really enjoyed it a lot. And uh, yeah, all uh, kudos to Odette and Kara for the collaboration, for the work that they did together. It's an extraordinary document. Um, I'll just say real quick that, um, you know, I um, was aware of Odette's work um, um, from, you know, her exhibitions, but also the amazing book that she did, Keeper of the Hearth, um, which I'm honored to be to have uh, contributed to. Um, and uh, I was asked by uh, Jean Dykstra at uh, Photograph Magazine to, to uh, do kind of an interview profile of Odette um, for Photograph Magazine a few years back. And, um, and so we that started a conversation um, and, um, you know, became more and more familiar with her work. And, um, you know, in the back of my mind, I was thinking that, oh, this is somebody I, who, as you said, said, you know, like speaks my language, you know, um, 
the conversation that she was having um, with images. I mean, you know, first of all, she's a really, Odette, I'm sorry to speak to you about you in the third person, um, you know, a great um, image maker, but also a really wonderful lyrical writer. And uh, that's my wheelhouse. And that's something I'm interested in. I'm interested in as a person uh, and as a publisher of St. Lizzie Books, the relationship between words and images um, that are in a way, um, organic to the process of the artist, the, the, the project that they're making, right? Um, and so, um, you know, we just started a conversation which eventually, you know, led us to work together on theory uh, character. So um, I'm very grateful to that, for that. Um, I think it is really a very unusual and special book. Um, is the object itself, you know, is, um, the paper quality and the the the, the tonality it is it's pale it's dry it's it's muted it's sun bleached you know it's like the landscape itself and i yeah. think that 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 you know where odette grew up and i think that the um just the content you know of writing about gender and about um uh, farm work in rural australia um working people in relationship to images uh, and um, in, in place and memory. I just, you know, there's not a lot of that, um, I think in, um, in the art world, so to speak. And um, I just think it's a necessary um, document of, mm -hmm. um, of Odette's work and her sort of brilliance in terms of uh, you know, uh, interrogating her own history and history of photography. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I'm just really proud to be part of it. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. I love the interrogation of our own history and that of photo history. Um, wow, I just, you, you spark so many stories in my head. Isa, I see that you have your hand up. Why don't you unmute and uh, yes. Hi. Hi. Um, uh, I, I found this discussion very interesting. And um, I, if uh, you haven't read Carol Adams' Sexual Politics of Meat, I highly recommend it as additional context to the examination of the way uh, uh, female uh, uh, animal bodies uh, are commodified. Um, in industrialized farming or commercialized farming. I'm curious, on dairy farms, calves are separated from their mothers fairly soon after their births to prevent them from, from consuming their mother's milk. And that separation can be quite traumatic for both the mother and the baby. Um, they experience great distress and they wail um, and they're rather anxious. And I'm curious whether witnessing these separations and their aftermath as a child impacted you and whether you examine this uh, in the book. Thank you. That's a really good question. And I think it it differs for different communities and it differs depending on how big one's dairy farm is. In our community and the surrounding ones, most of the communities in the state where I grew up with dairy farms were populations of 50 or 60 people and probably the largest dairy farm would have been around 110, 120 milking cows. So that's two hours twice a day. So we didn't have that kind of practice of separating mothers from their calves because 
we weren't running a commercial um, operation in a way that perhaps a larger dairy farm might or a different kind of community might. So I didn't see that. I know it happens and I've visited large commercial farms where it does happen and it's terrifying and I'm very familiar with Carol's book. I have it just here and I've, I've read it twice before and in the process of, of doing this book. And it was a, it's a really valuable um, text. There were other things, though, that I saw growing up that I didn't realise at the time because I was too young. I didn't know any different that they were traumatic because they weren't, no one responded in a way that would have led me to believe that they were traumatic. So, you know, things like, well, you know what, I no, it wouldn't be right to talk about them. But I saw a lot of things that later on upon reflection when I was writing about them thought, wow, on the one hand, do I not write about this because it could be a really disturbing read for someone? Or am I right? Why? What's the reason for even putting pen to paper to write them down? What am I doing by doing that or doing by sharing that? And so some of those didn't make it into the book or I used a picture to talk about or inference something that I had seen. And that's why there are so many photographs of this hiding away from the sun because the sun being the opposite of the darkness is not just the light and life giver of a rural property. It is also the thing that burns and can destroy things <laughs> as, as much as it can make things grow. So I liked the idea of, of talking to lightness and darkness as being characters for things that I either couldn't look at or that were things that made the wondrous pastures, the animals, the girls, the boys grow and the goodness, but also at the same time something that um, could very quickly flip and that also related to photography. Um, but what you're describing, um, which I have seen as an adult, I didn't witness uh, as a child. You know, it, this is so interesting and it's, um, it's a lot to speak of, but because this subject came up and because you spoke about how um, there, your, your um, thought process of debt of whether to include something or not, or how to do that, and the response of the viewer or the receiver of that information. I think that's one of our imposed behaviors, right? And it's why things get silenced, um, especially for women. So um, I'm going to share one other thing and I haven't shared this publicly, uh, but it, it really spoke to me and it's been kind of a, a, a drumbeat in the back of, um, my experience of the work that you've done. So in Keeper of the Hearth, you spoke about, or you didn't speak about, you actually had an essay on the experience of a woman in a stillborn, and then, it, which was breathtaking and heartbreaking. Um, and the uh, part that you have in this book is the photograph of the, that, that you had one um, stillborn, 
uh, set of twins and that uh, one had a condition and one didn't, but they both died. And you had that picture and what happened when you went to school with that. And what you're making um, is a pathway for me to share what I don't normally talk about, which is I am the mother of twins, but one of my daughters died in utero. And so I have a surviving twin. So when people look at me, they're like, she has two children. People can make a lot of comments like, um, you won the lottery, you got one of each. And there's so many silent stories in all of our lives and what pictures do and what pictures don't do. And in your sharing that experience of the stillborn twins, which happened to be girls, which is exactly what my twins were, it just made me say to myself, I need to talk about that more, that that's that your idea, not that you need to lead with that, but what stops me from talking about that is everyone's response. I make them uncomfortable. It's like, well, sorry, uh, because we need to be talking about these things and we need to be talking about the roles of women um, and uh, um, what is spoken of, what isn't, what's held up, what's not, what's silenced, et cetera. And the whole idea that you brought that photograph and it was gendered in terms of the response. Um, and because the boys were like curious and the girls were like, that's gross, you got put in the middle there. Right, right. Which makes me go back to maybe all of the above is why I reached for Miss Frizzle, <laughs> who I don't even have a good relationship with, any relationship with, but it was this idea that I knew she didn't shy away from shit, let's put it like that, right? And you don't either. And I really, oh. really appreciate that. Oh, what? sometimes I, what? sometimes I do. <laughs> I think sometimes I'm very good at shying away from stuff, well, mostly because I'm terrified of it. But that's, that's really, a, that's, a, that's a, OK. So that's we're going to be talking about that at your next book. But the fact <laughs> of the matter is that, yeah. like, I thought about your dad and mom's reaction to this book. Right. I mean, you you put out there some things that they may have had a um, a, a challenge to digest, you know, the view from you. Yeah, I feel like there's, you know, I've been asked that every single time I've talked about this book, one of the, you know, the recurrent questions has been, what do your mum and dad think? Uh, I'm not, you know, there's a long answer to that and a short answer to that. And the, the short one is probably goes way back to grad school when I emailed mum and said, so mum, I have this idea, I, you know, I'm in America and I have a then what Hepburn was like eight months old. Um, I'm trying to do full-time grad school and I, I'm, I'm struggling, really struggling. Um, and I said, listen, I, I need you to do me a favour. I call it a favour. I say that farm that you lost, that you haven't been back to in 22 years, I need you to go back, not just once, I need you to go back once a month, every month for an entire year and I need you to make pictures there for me and then send them to me. That'll be okay, great, thanks. And mum, of course, goes, sure, sweetie, whatever you need, that's fine. And I didn't realise at the time what a perversely ridiculous request that was until I became a parent myself and until my daughter asks me to do things and I, of course, say, sure, yeah, you know, happy to do it with the, with the strangest of, of requests. 
So when I told mum and dad I was going to be doing this book and writing these stories and my dad sort of makes this huh noise and goes back to watching the cricket and mum goes, that's fantastic. Oh, I can't wait to see it. Splendid. You know, <laughs> it, 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 it comes from an arc of family that, you know, it, it sounds all somewhat Brady Bunch and, and quite lovely and it is that, but also that we are, we are so... Um, proud of each other's strangeness and, and need to put things out and need to talk about things that perhaps don't always sound as, as lovely as they do to us um, out into the world in a different form. You know, from my grandmother, that was through painting. Um, from my mother, it was through raising children and, and being this incredibly gifted oral storyteller. And for me, it's the only way that I know how, which is through photography and collage and bookmaking and collaborating and working with others because, frankly, I, I, I don't know how to make these things without community and I don't know how to do these things without other people. So it's, you know, my book, It's it's I call it my book and my name's on the spine, but you know, like the same with Keeper, I guess. it's It doesn't exist without their participation. It doesn't exist without Mark and, and Cara and Lightwork and, and others who've contributed to it. And it simply wouldn't because I don't know how to do it myself. And the idea of doing it by myself sounds utterly terrifying to me and, and so soul-destroyingly dull and upsetting that I'm, I just I couldn't participate in it if it wasn't community-facing. Well, I'm certainly glad that you do. And I don't think that everybody is open to it, which I don't, I guess, I think that you are underestimating what is both brave and unique about that. Um, not everyone walks into it um, in the same way. And I'm going to have to now, of course, you've left me more to think about, and I've been thinking about you for days, um, is this idea that you're afraid of unturning any stone. I just don't think of you as shying away. Um, so that's a good nugget to think about. Um, <laughs> I'll turn it over. I just might not like what I see, or, or I might turn it over and someone might get upset. So I put it back and just pretend it's not there. Go away. I'll come back to you. <laughs> all, all in good time. We'll get to it. Yeah. 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 Well, if there's any other last question, um, please make it quick. But I appreciate everyone um, dealing with my not so stellar uh, visuals. But I didn't and, and often, uh, no pun intended, I don't like to show a lot because I don't want to give away the farm of a book. I want people to buy books and have them and hold them. Um, but um, I, I so appreciate um, your willingness to let us in, it is a lot like The Wizard of Oz and going behind the curtain because I've found every book you've made, even the one uh, whose name is going to escape me, it's about six feet, but is there a complete name? Oh, Beyond for Six Feet. Beyond Six, six Feet. feet. Yeah. Like whatever you're going to be mulling over as a concept in your mind, you just bring it to us in such like on its ear. That's how I experience it, right? And, uh, and I love that, right? Like all of a sudden six feet became the way of the world for a while, but you introduced it in this way. And um, so you're always coming in from a different door and I'm just so glad to be along for the ride. Oh, well, thank yeah. you. This has been very fun and you've been most generous. And thank you everyone, a special 
Thank you to Mark. You can get dairy character. It's we're just waiting for it to clear customs. Um, Yay. Um, so it's not far away. So St. Lucy Books, you can order it online. It's also available from Lightwork um, as part of their subscription program. You can get it online there too. And it's it's on my website. There's not like millions of copies either. So um, and it's it's a it's a it's a brick. It's like the back end of a back end of a school bus or the back end of a cow, you know, it's it's blunt cut and looks like a wafer and is really beautiful. That's great. We'll put links to where to get it. And when you bring up light work, that made me think of one of the other things I like to do at the beginning is to pitch the nonprofits that support everybody's work and also amplify it from, uh, you know, ICP, the Griffin Museum, Los Angeles Center of Photography, et cetera, et cetera. Um, to, um, it's so easy to be a member of some of these organizations and have subscriptions. And that's a lifeline to these places. So we're all feeding each other, right? Indeed. Yeah. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dad. Thank you, Sid. Most welcome.